0: through the book of Jonah and are looking towards setting our feet on dry land without too much motion sickness along the way hopefully and as we do i want to begin this morning with a quote from that fiery former whaler turned preacher father Mapple from Herman Melville's Moby Dick, he writes this Shipmates, this book, meaning Jonah, containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet, what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing that is that canticle in the fish's belly. But what is this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? What's the point? What's the lesson? What's the moral of the story? That's what we're going to get to today. And in order to get there, we have to start in the New York Times Opinion section, one of the healthiest places for healthy communication that exists in our culture. This is an opinion piece written by the political cartoonist Tim Kreider. He writes, a couple of years ago while meditating, I learned something kind of embarrassing. Anger feels good. I, although we may consciously experience it as upsetting, somatically in our bodies, it feels a lot like the first rush of an opiate, a tingling warmth on the insides of your elbows and wrists, in the back of your knees, Realizing that anger was a physical pleasure explained some of the perverse obstinacy with which my mind kept returning to it, despite the fact that intellectually, I knew it was pointless self-torture. Once I realized I enjoyed anger, I noticed how much time I spent experiencing it. If you're anything like me, you spend about 87% of your mental life winning imaginary arguments that are never actually going to take place. <laughs> Amen to that. Not with you, of course, <laughs> just in general, people. It seems like most of the fragments of conversation you overhear in public consists of rehearsals for or reenactments of just such speeches, shrill litanies of injury and injustice, affronts to common sense and basic human decency too grotesque to be born. You don't even have to bother eavesdropping. Just listen for that high whining tone of incredulous aggrievement. It sounds like we're all telling ourselves the same story over and over, how they tried to crush my spirit, sometimes with a happy denouement, but I showed them. Outrage is a lot like other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out, and it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. And as with all vices, vast and lucrative industries are ready to supply the necessary material. And here we go, buckle up for this line. It sometimes seems as if most of the news consists of outrage porn, selected specifically to pander to our impulses to judge and punish and get us all riled up with righteous indignation. Think of the tabloids' punning headlines, wailing and jeering and all but calling for the public stoning of their scapegoats. And let's not even mention talk radio or the Internet. And what's fascinating about this opinion piece is that it was written in 2009, The smartphone was in its infancy. It was seven years before the 2016 election, 11 years before COVID and the murder of George Floyd, and 13 years before Elon Musk bought Twitter. In other words, things have only gotten more outrageous, which raises the question, what sets the stage for your outrage? When you get angry, when you are outraged by something or someone, and we can be honest here this morning, we all do. But what's your trigger? What sets you up and sets you off? What type of injury or injustice gets you riled up? And gets you riled up to the point where it begins to feel good to feel wronged. To somehow subtly put yourself in the place of a victim and begin to shout for the public stoning of certain individuals or groups of people. So as you consider your own outrage, let's look at Jonah's to discover the source of his so that we might discover, in turn, the lesson of the book of Jonah. So a brief recap. God speaks to Jonah, telling him to preach to the murderous, despicable Ninevites, but he goes in the opposite direction, fleeing from God, where he meets some sailors who are converted in a storm, which Jonah has them throw him overboard in order to stop the storm only to be swallowed up by a massive fish-slash-sea monster where he lives for three days and three nights until he prays to God to rescue him and promises, therefore, to go to Nineveh, resulting in the fish vomiting Jonah onto dry land, which is where we pick up the story today. And just a reminder, everything that is happening in this story is inside out and upside down. Everything that's happening here is meant to do the opposite of what you expect the characters to do, the faithless Israelite prophet, the repentant Ninevite people, and the consistently good and merciful and loving God. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Here in verse 1, we have some good news already. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The mercy of God The God who's always willing to speak a second time. Let me repeat myself. In case you didn't catch that, here we go again. But there's a subtle difference in how God communicates the second time versus what God communicates the first time. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Here in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. It's a subtle but important difference, and hang on to that. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. A few weeks ago, I was talking with my incredible wife, Robin, uh, who's making cinnamon rolls right now so I can be a little more honest. (laughs) And um, we were talking about Jonah, and she said, so what's the deal with the whale? And look, I, I went to seminary, spent a lot of money, and time learning the Hebrew language. And I've spent that time since then forgetting most of it. But here's one I did not forget. So she said, what's the deal with the whale? And I very quickly, quite arrogantly, very nerdily said to her, well, well, actually, it's not a whale, it's a great fish. It's a big fish. That's what the Hebrew literally means. And she said, well, actually, enjoy being a big person sleeping on a small couch tonight. (laughs) What she actually said was, so so what what's the point who cares what does it matter if it's a great if it's a big whale versus a great fish what's the point what what does it mean and i was like well actually i have no idea (laughs) and so while i slept on the couch that night i did some research Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And in the Assyrian language, there is, and culture, there is a word, Nina, which means fish. It's the goddess of the sea. And so Nineveh means fish town. Right, right? So Jonah, the prophet, spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish to then be vomited up to go to spend three days and three nights in fishtown. It's like it's inspired. But here we continue along and see, okay, so Jonah is going to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the fish again, preaching God's judgment against it. But the city is large, and Jonah goes one day's walk into a three-day's journey. What should have taken Jonah three days to proclaim to all of the neighborhoods within the city of Nineveh, Jonah goes one day and then he preaches one thing, five Hebrew words, 40 more days, and will be overthrown. Now it keeps getting better. In Hebrew, the word for overthrown can have two different meanings. One meaning is like turned upside down, right? Like the judgment is going to turn this thing over to experience the natural consequences of their choices but it also has another meaning which gets used more frequently than the word overturned and that word is transformed and so it's it, it, it's like Jonah says 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown or transformed Turned upside down or changed from the inside out? And so the people take this play on words, the the different possibilities of the meanings, and they say, oh, they, they believed God. And they proclaim a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth which was an ancient form of public just repentance it was it was as if you were saying like i'm as good as gone i recognize my brokenness my shame my death god would you have mercy on me and they fast for 40 days And the king of Nineveh proclaims through the whole city that every single person, including the animals, participate in this fast. And it is the most wild, ridiculous, crazy response. There is no other response to a prophetic proclamation like this in the entire Hebrew Bible. It's just, widespread complete transformation 180 degrees we continue to verse 10 when god saw that they did what when god saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways god relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened In other words, God changed his mind. This thing that God said God was going to do, God changes God's mind. I'm not going to do that. Now, for some of you, that might make you theologically anxious. Does God change God's mind? Well, yes and no. God does not change God's mind about the ultimate purpose and plan of history, which is to renew and remake and redeem all things. God is unchanging in God's commitment to that plan of which you and me are graciously a part. But our end of the bargain is, the way in which we influence and participate in that plan. God, who is relationship, works with his human participants in that plan, and that necessarily leads to God having to change God's mind from time to time. And one of the things that changes God's mind most often is when humans acknowledge that we have lost the plot And that we are sorry. And that we have missed it. And that we have been merciless where God is merciful. And so the Ninevites show us the profound reality that comes into shining clarity and focus in and through the person and work of Jesus. That God will relent when you repent whether you have been a part of church for your whole life or you are new to this whole following Jesus thing or considering what it might mean for you. God wants you to be a cooperative friend. God wants your heart to resemble and reveal God's heart for all people. And sometimes We set out in the wrong direction, even thinking that we are properly representing God, and we have to stop and reflect and turn back. And God is always willing to forgive and be gracious and welcome you back in. God will relent when you repent continuing on to chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. In other words, Jonah was outraged. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. And we continue on into verse 3 and 4. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah Jonah's motivations are laid bare here. He's like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. These evil, atrocious, despicable people who I was really not on board because I knew that you wouldn't, but I really wanted you to, and you should have wanted to, bring destruction upon them. And all they just say sorry, and you're like, okay. Now, I want... I want you to reflect on your life and your experiences. And I want you to bring something or someone, some situation or circumstance to mind where you have wanted or where you would want God to bring some form of judgment, some consequence to somebody for the stupidity of their actions, for the pain that it's caused you or others. And be honest about how you really, genuinely feel about the fact that God is quick to forgive that person when they turn and return to God. And how does that make you feel? Because that's how Jonah is feeling. And is inviting us into something that is profound. you can be disappointed with God, and God can handle it. You can be frustrated and outraged with certain realities of your life or the world, and you can take those things to God, and God can handle it. But what is Jonah bringing up here? What is he saying? Jonah here is quoting back to God the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, which is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And this is essentially God's character description, God's mission statement as revealed in the Old Testament. And he essentially reads the the first part of the verse. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew, that's not just saying the title, it's saying Yahweh, God's personal name, Yahweh, from which we get the word Jesus. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. In Hebrew, it's a word picture that means long of nostril, which means that it takes a really, really long time for God to get angry. Like God can just simmer down. Doesn't have a quick trigger. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Jonah wants the God of verse 7. Jonah wants, them, wants the Ninevites to be punished for their wickedness rebellion, and sin. But Jonah, or the writer of Jonah, has him leaving off this verse. Because the most important thing about the character of God is found in verse 6. God forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that's frustrating That can be frustrating for those of us who feel like God should be on our side. And yet God is quick to forgive when we are slow. I knew that you were a gracious God. In verse 4, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than, ex- than experience, the Ninevites experience God. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? I have a complicated relationship with anger. When I was about six or seven years old. I had a number of different anger outbursts at school. And so I was taken to a counselor that the school made available. And I was assessed, asked questions, played with some toys. And then at the end, I sat with this counselor alongside my parents. And I don't remember exactly what this counselor said, but I remember what I heard and what I felt, which is you have an anger problem, which I internalized as you are a problem. And anger is why. And so I have never made friends until recently with the things that make me angry because they're problematic. Or so I thought, came to believe. And no adult at that point in my life had the emotional bandwidth to ask me why I was angry or to reflect a question like this that God does back. Is it right for you to be? Is this type of anger healthy anger or not? Eugene Peterson writes this, "'Anger is most useful as a diagnostic tool. "'When anger erupts in us, "'it is a signal that something is wrong. "'Anger is infused by a moral-slash-spiritual intensity "'that carries conviction.' When we are angry, we know we are on to something that matters, that really counts. What anger fails to do, though, is tell us whether the wrong is outside us or inside us. We usually begin by assuming that the wrong is outside us. Our spouse or child or God has done something wrong and we are angry. That is what Jonah did and he quarreled with God. But... When we track the anger carefully, we often find it leads to a wrong within us. Wrong information, inadequate understanding, underdeveloped heart. If we admit and face that, we are pulled out of our quarrel with God and pulled into something large and vocational in God. But unfortunately, or fortunately for us, Jonah doesn't possess this level of self-awareness. And to be honest, most of us don't most of the time either. And so God tries to bring the point home by providing Jonah with an object lesson. Continuing in verse 5, Jonah had gone out of the city and sat down a place east of the city. And in the biblical imagination, when you go east, you are always moving away from God. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. And in Hebrew, the word is is more effervescent. It's like Jonah was rejoicing about and having compassion on this plant it's 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 almost like the 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 word for the experience of what happens when a child is born that type of like oh yes oh you oh this is amazing but at the dawn of the day god provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered and that night the very hungry caterpillar had a stomach ache When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he's back. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. With the emotional resilience of a toddler, Jonah would rather die than endure the elements and God's character. But God says to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant. The word God uses for concerned is you had compassion. You had an emotional attachment to this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And here comes the lesson of Jonah. Here comes the mic drop. And should I not have concern, the Hebrew word here is compassion that relents from punishment. In other words, should I not compassionately spare the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Jonah, you had compassion for something that you did not create, So how much more then should I have compassion on the things that I did create who don't know their right hand from their left? And then Jonah says this. Next slide. (laughs) The credits roll, that's it. That's Jonah the book of Jonah, it's over. We don't get to hear what Jonah's response is, and so we're left wondering, pondering, what is Jonah's response, which is a tool that the writer gives us to question our own response. How do we feel about this? What is the point of Jonah? What is the lesson? It's teaching us that God's mercy is for people I abhor. God's mercy is for people I abhor, people I can't stand, people I think are wrong and broken and backwards and despicable and undeserving of God's grace and mercy. God's mercy is for them, as much as it is for you and for me. And we are invited to sit with that truth bomb and let it work on us. The cultural critic David Saul helps us understand the mercy of God when he writes that God's mercy is not reserved for the righteous, though we want it to be. It is not reserved for lesser forms of wrongdoing or only personal forms of wrongdoing. The stunning, offensive thing about the mercy of God is that it is not dependent on context, which means it is not dependent on you. It is dependent only on Jesus Christ himself. And so, how do we translate this into our lives? What do we do with this? How do we live it? Well, I think the way of putting this into practice is by recognizing that we are most like God when we are extending mercy to the people least like us. We are the most like God when we are extending mercy to the people least like us. And if this is causing you a bit of outrage, take it from J.C. himself. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, your most like God. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now here we go. Let me just sidebar and say this is for me. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors those people that you despise and see as moral failures, are they not even doing this? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Assumption. Followers of Jesus do more to extend mercy and love and grace than others. Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, there it is. There's the out. I can't possibly do this. I can't be perfect. Like, only God is perfect. I am not perfect. I cannot, as hard as I try, I cannot be perfect. And trust me, I try a lot. But in order to extend mercy, in order to be perfectly merciful as God is perfectly merciful, we need to understand something. That we overestimate what we are capable of doing by trying, and we radically underestimate what we are capable of doing. By training. The practices of the way of Jesus are meant to train us in becoming people who can, in the moment, respond out of habit with mercy to people who persecute or injure or malign us in some way. We cannot try to just simply be merciful on auto-response when people do something that causes us to be outraged. But we can train ourselves, to be empathic and compassionate towards all people through the practices of the way of Jesus so that when we are finding ourselves outraged, we can course correct and extend mercy because we have built the mercy habit into us by regularly receiving God's forgiveness and extending it to others. And so here's one way that we can train to do this this week. Find some silence and some solitude. Find a little bit of space where you can be alone with God. And in that time, once you let the dust settle, I want you to tell God name them, write them down, or develop a list. Write down the categories of people who you don't want to extend mercy to. You're like, isn't that, like, shouldn't, shouldn't we not do that? Isn't that sacrilegious? Reread Jonah. It's exactly what Jonah does. I don't want to extend mercy to them. List all of the reasons why you don't. And then slowly read that list back to yourself and simply listen for what God brings to mind. And if you do this, I guarantee you will in some way receive the mercy of God in a fresh way. And if we all do that, if we all have a fresh experience of God's mercy, it makes me wonder this what if mercy was this generation's legacy for future generations' destiny? Amen.